For too long, we thought we could bend the world to suit just us, the human race. No more. As we face the challenges of climate change, inequality and environmental degradation, we know that to simply sustain is not enough. We need to regenerate. A regenerative future is one where people and our planet flourish, hand in hand in the long term. At the RSA, we're building a programme that brings people and ideas together to show how this could look, act and feel. Join the regeneration. Visit the rsa.org forward slash regenerative dash futures. Hello. Family anecdotes can sometimes provide a safe way to acknowledge difficult things. A while ago, we had friends over for dinner. I was in full spate about the political topic of the day. It might have been trans rights. When my wife attempted to get a word in edgeways, I exclaimed, Darling, please don't interrupt me when I'm talking about feminism. Now, it was self-parody, and Ruth knew that, Yet the fact she never tires of telling the story, well, it probably says quite a lot. I protest that I'm sure I speak less than her in groups. She raises an eyebrow. I assure her that I value her views on every topic with the possible exception of football. She smiles thinly. I assure her that I'm trying to remove residual laddishness from my worldview. She doesn't even bother to reply. I suspect the book I'll be discussing today on Bridges to the Future as strongly confirms women's experience of the world as it challenges men's perception. This is Bridges to the Future, the Big Ideas podcast, brought to you by the RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor. I'm delighted to be joined by Marianne Seekhart, the author of The Authority Gap, Why Women Are Still Taken Less Seriously Than Men and What We Can Do About It. Marianne, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, and very much looking forward to this. Well, I really enjoyed the book, and there were moments, of course, when I kind of put it down and thought, ooh, is that me she's talking about? Let's just start with the basic thesis of the book, because in the first kind of half of it, I felt, well, this is something quite specific, very powerful about the gap in the authority that women tend to have in social contexts in comparison to men, and particularly the way that men, not just men, but also women themselves kind of perpetuate that authority gap. But then it felt to me that the canvas moved to a wider view, really, of the many ways in which women are subject to prejudice and exclusion so tell us the core thesis of the book. The core thesis is that we still take women less seriously than men. So we tend to underestimate them, to challenge their expertise, to patronise them, to interrupt them or talk over them when they're talking, and to resist having their views influence ours. And so I suppose you could sum it up by saying we assume a man knows what he's talking about until he proves otherwise, whereas for women, it's all too often the other way around. We start with a default assumption that they are less expert than they are. So that's authority as expertise, but I also talk about authority in terms of power and leadership. So we both resist women's expertise and we resist women in power and leadership. And that might be why you thought that the book sort of broadened out in the second half. 
Yeah, no, I mean, it wasn't a complaint, Marianne, at all. I just was interested in the kind of arc of the argument. It was almost as if the more you delved, the more elements of this that you wanted to expose to the reader. And that you provide such a wide array of powerful evidence. I think the evidence I found most compelling, possibly because I'd never heard it before, was the evidence from trans people and the way in which they had noticed trans men in particular, or both ways actually, recognised the way in which their authority had changed. So trans women were kind of shocked by the way in which suddenly they kind of lost authority and trans men delighted but also surprised by the way in which they were suddenly taken more seriously. Yes, I found this absolutely fascinating because in any normal situation, if you are a woman and say your male colleague at the same level gets promoted and you don't, you might suspect that bias or sexism were at play but it's terribly hard to prove because he might, after all, just be better than you. But trans people provide this fantastic experiment because you're controlling for every other variable apart from the one that matters, which is gender, because they are exactly the same person with the same ability, intelligence, experience, personality. And the only thing that changes after they transition is their gender. And therefore, if they discover that they are treated quite differently when people suddenly perceive them as being a man, say, and they start earning a lot more respect and being taken more seriously. I think that is the most fantastic evidence, actually, for the existence of the authority gap. So I used the example of two Stanford professors who each transitioned in opposite directions at the same time, by coincidence. And Ben Barris, who was a neuroscientist, said, after he started living as a man, I've had the thought a million times, I'm just taken more seriously now. People who don't know I'm transgendered treat me with so much more respect. He said, I can even finish a sentence without being interrupted by a man. And someone was overheard who didn't know his history at the back of one of his seminars saying, oh, Ben Barris gave a great seminar today, but then his work's so much better than his sister's, <laughs> i.e. himself. <laughs> And meanwhile, Joan Roughgarden, an evolutionary biologist, once she started living as a woman, was just horrified by how little respect she was given compared with when people saw her as a man. And she went through the whole litany of the sort of experiences that, that we women have the whole time. She said, you know, I was condescended to, I was interrupted, I couldn't make a point at a meeting without a man affirming it. And to start with, I thought, well, if I'm going to live as a woman, I'm darn well going to be discriminated against as a woman. And she said, well, the thrill of that has worn off, I can tell you. And what really struck her, I think, and probably hurt her the most, was the way she and her work were attacked after she started living as a woman, something that had never happened to her when she was living as a man. So, for instance, people would say things like, you haven't read the literature, or you don't understand the statistics. And she was horrified by this because no one had ever said that to her when she was living as a man. And her conclusion was, men are assumed to be competent until proven otherwise, and women are assumed to be incompetent until proven otherwise. And actually, much bigger studies of trans men and women have found exactly the same phenomenon. So this is not just anecdotal. So if you're listening to this and you're feeling at all complacent, I think the message of the book is that you really may think as a man that this isn't about you. You may really think that you don't dominate, that you don't speak more, that you don't have any kind of predisposition to think that men are more expert than women. But the book really encourages you to question that complacency. And if you're a woman and you think, well, this is all about men and their problems, actually, 
the book will also tell you that you too are quite likely to be suffering from the same set of unconscious biases. Why do you think this has come about? Because this is deep, deep in us, and we have to work hard against it. Where do you see the origins of this deep set predisposition? Well, millennia of patriarchy have played their part. I should imagine most of us have grown up in a household in which our father worked more than our mother, our father earned more than our mother, our father perhaps had more authority even at home than our mother. And we have all grown up in a world in which men have basically been in charge. And therefore, the heuristics in our brain, you know, the shortcuts just make it much easier for us to associate male with authority than female with authority. And the Harvard Implicit Association Test, which has its critics, but nonetheless does measure how quickly and accurately we can associate male and female words with words that are associated with, say, home and career, finds that women are just as implicitly biased as men, in fact, a tiny bit more so. And liberals are just as biased as conservatives, and the young are just as biased as the old. Yeah, I was really struck by the finding that the young are as affected by the old. And I'll come back to that in a second when we talk about how much this is changing. But first, I wanted to know, one of the things you say in the book is that men don't read books by women as much as women read books by men and don't take them as seriously. You know, Marion, there were lots of parts of your book where I really did kind of think, my goodness, I need to reflect on this. This is the one bit where I felt reasonably secure because it turns out, actually, I'm for a long time been much more interested in books written by women. But has the response to your book rather confirmed your expectation? Have you found that it's women in the media or women in general who want to talk to you much more about this than men? Sadly, yes, this is the case. I was very pleased that the Sunday Times gave the book to a man to review And he concluded by saying, I warmly recommend this book to other men. And I was thrilled about that because I really want men to read it. And as you alluded to in your question, women on average read roughly half and half books written by men and books written by women. For men, the average is four to one books written by men to books written by women. So 80% on average of the books they read are written by men. And the world isn't going to change, frankly, unless they read this sort of book and start understanding how they need to change. But I have been slightly depressed that when I've done live events, on average, about three quarters of the audience have been female and the men have probably been partners and husbands dragged along by them. I mean, I was just talking to a man today. He's hosting a dinner for very senior people in the city for me to talk to about the book. And he specifically said on the invitation, you know, I really want men to come to this as well as women. But no, it's the same old 70-30. And while it's great to talk to women about this because it gives them a lot of ammo in their discussions about the subject, we're not going to change the world, I'm afraid, unless men listen too. Let's turn to this question of how the world is changing. Because there are times in the book where there's a a strong hopeful tone and you, you talk about what's shifting. And then there are other times, as I just said, where you really want to guard against complacency. Just actually after I'd read the chapter about books, I was reminded of a piece I read in The Observer, I think a few months ago, which was entitled How Women Conquered the World of Fiction. So there are some places in which this is changing. What's your assessment? How do we understand what is happening? Are, Are we on an inexorable path to the authority gap 
closing or are things going to be more choppy than that? I think things are definitely getting better. I think they're getting better slowly and I would like to speed it up. And sometimes they're going backwards. I mean, you only have to look at Afghanistan or Texas to see that. I think things are getting better in that more women are being appointed to senior visible jobs. And I think gradually over time, seeing more women in authority will help to reconfigure our brains and our unconscious bias so that we less easily associate male with authority and women without, as it were. I I use the analogy of how my grandparents probably thought it was incredibly incongruous to see a woman driving a car and it would really pull them up short if they saw one. And my parents probably thought it was quite daring for a woman to wear trousers at work. (laughs) Both of those things now are utterly normal. And I think once it seems utterly normal for a woman to be in authority, the authority gap will automatically start to narrow. But I think, really do think that we can speed it up. And arguing against what I've just been saying, I have been slightly depressed by discovering that young people whose antennae you would have thought would be exquisitely attuned to any sort of ism, you know, they certainly are to racism or to homophobia, And yet they're still quite sexist, a lot of them. Just anecdotally, I talked to quite a few female students, you know, 20, 21, that sort of age, telling me things like, oh, the boys just don't think we're their intellectual equals. And I thought, what? Not their intellectual equals. When girls outperform boys at every educational level from nursery to PhD, and the the idea that 20-year-old boys now, young men, I should say, don't think that young women are their intellectual equals is really quite shocking. Now, again, that's anecdotal, but there was an interesting survey, international survey done asking people how suited women were for various types of leadership. And young men were actually less likely than older men to say that women were suited to political leadership. And again, I found that pretty both surprising and depressing. I remember many, many years ago, there was a song by a band long since gone called The Au Pairs. It was called You're Equal But Different, which I used to enjoy dancing along to. Where do you stand on that, Marion? Because there are a couple of points in the book, and I'm relating this to the point about young people as well, where you do want to say women are different. You want to say, for example, that women leaders are more likely to invest in care than defense. And towards the end of the book, you talk about the idea that women leaders may be more empathic, more humble. So that's a suggestion that that women are different and that we should prize that difference. Whereas, of course, in a lot of the rest of the book, the core argument is to say we must not treat women as being different. And I think that, you know, as someone who's brought up two sons, grown up sons, and now I have a nine-year-old daughter, I have simply observed the very different things that have mattered to them as children, their different predispositions. And, And I've done that even though I've been working quite hard to avoid sexism, how do we kind of deal with this issue of, of, as it were, wanting to allow difference and also recognise that in some ways women may have particular qualities, girls have particular enthusiasms, without it undermining equality? It's a really interesting question, that. So when I talked about female leaders being more empathic, spending more money on care than defence and that sort of thing, those are just facts, <laughs> Where does it come from, you may ask? I mean, I do think that we are conditioned differently 
And we're conditioned not just by our parents. You know, you, Matthew, might be trying to do a very good job of, you know, quite gender neutral upbringing of your children. But we're conditioned by our peers a lot, too. And we're conditioned by the world around us and what we see on TV and that sort of thing. And so it's interesting, for instance, that if you take babies and toddlers and offer them an identical toy of two different colours, up until the age of about two and a half, both boys and girls will choose pink as opposed to another colour 50% of the time, as you would expect by chance. From the age of about two and a half, which is when children do start to notice the world around them more and perhaps are starting to go to nursery and have peer group pressure, girls start overwhelmingly choosing pink and boys start overwhelmingly rejecting it. So this happens very early in childhood, this differentiation between the genders. But I don't take the essentialist view that it's somehow something in our genetic makeup that comes perhaps is evolutionarily determined because men were out, I don't know, hunting mammoths or having to compete more for mates while we were gathering berries. So if that were the case, that we are just fundamentally different from birth, then, for instance, this notion that, say, men are more competitive than women would hold true in all societies and in all contexts, because it will be something that is just part of our bodily function almost. But in fact, if you study matriarchal societies, and there are a few, and you compare them with patriarchal ones, there was one study done, for instance, of a matriarchal society in India, the Kazi, and comparing them with the Maasai in Tanzania. And they found that Kazi women were not just more competitive than Kazi men, but they were actually more competitive than Maasai men. So that suggests that it isn't an essentialist difference between women and men, but rather something that comes from the way that we're brought up and treated. So that, of course, is a you know is a radical idea that we find it easy, if we're progressive, I guess, to accept in theory, but quite hard, I think, to practice in our day-to-day lives. Going back to this question we were talking about a moment ago, which is the inevitability of progress. So we might say, well, look, overall, we can see progress. And you cite in your book relatively small interventions that can make quite a big difference to you know, boys' and girls' perceptions of the world. For example, bringing female scientists into schools can make a real difference to girls' sense that STEM subjects offer them, for example. But there is one of the reasons to worry about the future, I guess, is there is a backlash. I mean, I talked to Paul Mason on the podcast a few weeks ago, and we were just talking about the role of misogyny in the kind of alt-right movement and how there a kind of sense that women are out to emasculate men is a really important kind of part of the ideology and also what mobilizes people and sometimes mobilizes people to the most appalling acts. And this is something that you get into in the book itself. Do you see this backlash as something that we ought to be worrying about or is it, as it were, a kind of residual last gasp of that form of thinking? I think we should be terribly worried about it. I mean, yes, it is a last gasp. And of course, the more power and authority that women earn, the stronger will be the backlash against them. But they're really suffering as a result of this backlash. And that's why I think we should be worried. Because women are 27 times more likely to be abused online than men. 27 times. Think of that. And it's not just women in the public eye, though, boy, do they suffer and have to be incredibly brave to put themselves out there. It's a teenage girl 
putting up a YouTube video about braiding her hair and getting rape threats in the comments section. I mean, how sick do you have to be to do that? But that is really happening. And the other thing that is happening that worries me a lot is that young boys are being groomed online by the alt-right, by what's known as the manosphere. And as you say, it's, it's quite tied up sometimes with white supremacy as well. And they're being groomed to believe that girls are trying to oppress them, that girls will make manufactured rape threats against them, that white men are dying out and they're going to be supplanted by women or by black women. And we're seeing the result of this, even in British schools today. So Laura Bates, for instance, fantastic young woman who started up the Everyday Sexism Project and has written a book about men who hate women. She went undercover into the manosphere to discover a lot of this. And she's been visiting schools about twice a week for many years now. And she says she has really noticed how much more young boys from the age of about 11 onwards are starting to spout this sort of manosphere propaganda and how they're taking it out on the girls in their class, in their year, in their school. So if a girl says something that is quite assertive about wanting to be treated equally, these boys will start calling her a feminazi. It's really quite horrible. And I think it's something that we need to take pretty seriously in schools. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And I, I'm thankful that at last we're paying attention to the ubiquity of pornography and, you know, deeply misogynistic pornography amongst children and schools are now waking up to that. I mean, my, I've got a daughter who's nine and it's not a moment too soon because I think this has become a, a new kind of dimension of this problem. Absolutely. You know, I find violence and degrading porn just so horrible. And the fact that, you know, young boys can be exposed to it is, is really terrifying. And that, that's their form of sex education. Of course, they're not going to treat girls and women with respect if that's how they think the adult world works. I think, yeah, being exposed to it, but also I think then seeking to normalise it, seeking to persuade girls that this is kind of, you know, normal and reasonable expectations that, that they have. Now, in the book, you make a number of references to what, to use the jargon, is referred to as intersectionality. So you, you acknowledge on many occasions the fact that black women, uh, women with disabilities, carry a, a double or multiple burden. And you talk also about class. I wondered, though, whether you underplayed the class issue a little bit, yeah, only in as much as I was very influenced, I don't know, 10 years ago by reading Alison Wolfe's book, which argued, in essence, that there was a fundamental difference between what's happening with professional women and middle-class women around the world and what's happening with working-class and disadvantaged women, that enormous strides have been made. Countries where I don't know, a generation and a half ago, there would almost be no women engineers or doctors. And, and now there are kind of half of the people coming out of university in Asian countries, for example, subcontinental countries in those areas are women. Yet, if you look at the bottom end of the labor market, if you look at the lowest paid work, and particularly if you look at caring and the, the way that caring is low status, low paid job in almost all societies, the prospects for poorer women have changed much less do you think that's right? Do you think that when we look at this issue of uh, of the authority gap, we need to recognise that there has been a divergence between the progress made by professional women and the lack of progress made by poorer women? Yes, so progress really wasn't what I was writing about. 
I do think, I mean, you're probably right, I probably did underplay class in that I think you could write a whole book about the class authority gap, and you could also write another whole book about the race authority gap. I'm not the person to write either of those because I'm middle class and white. But yes, I think probably middle class women have advanced more than working class women. On the other hand, I was trying to make the point, one of the reasons I interviewed a lot of incredibly successful and authoritative women for this book, we haven't talked about that yet, is because I thought if even they have experienced the authority gap, then that is pretty good proof that the whole of womankind has. So being middle class and professional and successful doesn't insulate you from it. So although you might get the good job, it doesn't then insulate you from being disregarded when you try to make a point at a meeting, for instance. Yes. And as you say, that is a very powerful part of the book. I mean, you interview an amazing kind of array of incredibly powerful, successful women in politics and business and media and and culture. And your thesis resonates with them. They reinforce it. They offer you with some vivid examples of that. Were, Were there any of those women who disagreed with you, Marianne, were there any women that you met who wanted to say, no, I I don't like the idea at all that I have suffered from this kind of authority gap? I think the only one who just said she hadn't was Zannie Minton-Beddows, who's editor of The Economist. But she has spent almost her entire life at The Economist. And having worked there myself, I can vouch for the fact that it is actually a very equal institution in which people are respected really only for their intelligence, and on the whole, they're very intelligent people. And mostly, I would say, women are respected as much as men are. And so I think she's led a very lucky, but perhaps quite insulated life at work, and therefore hasn't really been been exposed to it. But I mean, all the others had. So probably 39 out of the 40 odd very authoritative women I spoke to had. Some of them, like Janet Yellen, said, well, look, it really really hasn't been a problem for me in the last decade or two. But then she's been chair of the Federal Reserve and um, Treasury Secretary. But she suffered from it a lot earlier in her career. Yes. And you make the point, which I thought was interesting, the kind of sexual dimension of this, that some of the women said to you that the authority gap had become less problematic once they got to a certain age, but men were less likely to view them as sex objects and were more likely to actually focus on what they were actually saying and the skills they actually had. Yes, that's true. I think it's it's partly being less sexually attractive and it's partly also being braver post-menopause. There's something about when you go through the menopause, you just think, I just don't give a toss anymore. And you know, <laughs> you're more likely to stand up for yourself. Elaine Chow, who was Donald Trump's transport secretary, described herself as, what was it, a howitzer or something like that? Bazooka. I think she said I was like a bazooka in the situation room the other day. And she said that was because just with age, she had become so much braver. Now, another point that you make in the book, which is one of the reasons why I was glad to read it and why I encourage every man who's listening to this podcast to read it, is that you, you want to say that this gap and the kind of broader sexism around it is damaging to men. Now, in a moment, I want to come to, I think, one element of that argument I think you could have made even more strongly. But but before I do that, that is something you want us to recognise, is that in the end, whilst men may gain positional advantage from the authority gap, actually, it makes the world worse for all of us. It really does make the world worse for all of us. And of course, you know, everybody knows how more diverse groups of people make better decisions and 
if you're not promoting women according to their talents, then you're actually losing a lot of talent in an organization. It would perform better if you did. So those are obvious. But I think what cheered me up was how much men themselves can gain from taking women more seriously. So first of all, men can gain if we have just less sort of delineated stereotypes for both how women are expected to behave, but also how men are expected to behave, because that's pretty constraining for men. But also I came across fascinating academic research showing, for instance, that in more gender equal countries, but particularly in more gender equal relationships, not only are the women healthier and happier, as you might expect, and the children are healthier and happier, they do better at school, they have fewer behavioral difficulties, the girls in particular are more ambitious for themselves. But the men are healthier and happier. So they are twice as likely to say that they're satisfied with their lives. They're half as likely to be depressed, much less likely to get divorced. They tend to smoke less, to drink less, to take fewer drugs. They sleep better at night. And here is the absolute clincher. They get more frequent and better sex. So guys, this is very much in your interest too. And there was one thing I thought that that added to the argument that there wasn't a book. I offer this to you for your second edition, Marianne, which is you talk in the book about the fact that there's a tendency amongst teachers and parents to say that the reason boys succeed is because of their talent and to say that the reason that girls succeed is because of their effort. And you associate this with with the kind of notion that boys are more talented than, than girls and that girls are kind of plodding in some sense. And you make that argument very strongly. But I thought then of the work of Carol Dweck and her work on growth mindset is a really important example of how men suffer from this because she demonstrates in that work that actually if you feel you've succeeded because of effort, it is actually much more likely that you will succeed than if you think it's due to talent. And that's simply because if you think you've done well because of talent and you come across something you can't do, you kind of think you've run out of talent. Whereas if you can't do something, but you think you've got where you are because of effort, you think, well, I just need to try harder. So Dweck's work, which is very influential, actually encourages teachers. I do this as a, as a parent. I say to my daughter when she does well, I never say to her, oh, aren't you clever? I always say to you, haven't you tried hard? Because that encourages the growth mindset. So this is another example of how sexism damages boys, because it's actually not the best mindset to think that you're doing well because you have innate talent. That's really interesting. I have come across her work, but I hadn't sort of put two and two together the way you have like that. Because the, tr the trouble is that diligence and hard work in a man's world tend to be valued less highly than brilliance and talent. And therefore, women in their job evaluations are much more likely to have what's known as the grindstone words used about them, such as, oh, she's hardworking, she's conscientious, she's diligent, and men are much more likely to be described as outstanding and brilliant and talented. And that's supposed to be a good thing, isn't it? You know, we're, we're more likely, both men and women probably, to think, oh, gosh, you know, I'd be lucky to be able to hire him. And perhaps slightly to look down on the grindstone type person. But what you're saying, actually, is that we should be hiring the conscientious, diligent, hardworking person. Because they're much less likely to be dispirited if they find something difficult. Because in the end, we can't change our talent, but we can change, we can increase our effort. Marianne, the, the book ends with, I lost count, 
an awful lot of suggestions. When I say I lost count, I don't mean it was tedious. There was just so much that was there to think about of suggestions for things that we might do as partners, as parents, as employers. I know it's invidious, but pick out just two or three things more than anything else that we should do, listeners should do, whatever roles they've got to try themselves to make a contribution to closing the authority gap. Oh, it's hard. I I did count the other day. There are about 140. (laughs) (laughs) And it's because the authority gap manifests itself in so many seemingly small ways, each at the time trivial but very annoying, like being interrupted or talked over at a meeting. But they roll up like compound interest over the course of a lifetime to create this really sizable gap in opportunity and achievement between women and men. And therefore, the solutions are all quite small solutions like, you know, try to listen as attentively to women as to men, try not to interrupt them, that sort of thing. But I suppose if I were to choose three, the first would be accept that however liberal or intelligent or even female you are, you probably do suffer from unconscious bias. You can't put a lid on it. You can't change it. It's called unconscious for a reason. And you needn't feel ashamed of it, but you should try to correct for it at every opportunity and notice when it manifests itself. So that would be my first recommendation. I think the second would be stop mistaking confidence for competence. Now, I write a lot about confidence in the book. We haven't had a a chance to talk about it, but the ways in which we make it so much harder for women to appear as confident as men. We sort of punish them for doing that, but we also punish them for being underconfident. And so we have to look through the confidence and the bluster and the self-promotion of a lot of men and try to look at their actual ability and achievements and women's actual ability and achievements when they are being self-deprecating and modest as they've been brought up to be. So in other words, we we have to be much more rigorous at assessing people's worth and don't assume that the man with the loudest voice in the room knows what he's talking about and don't assume that the woman who doesn't speak up much at meetings has nothing to say. And the third would be just to treat every individual you meet as an individual and not judge them through some warped template of outdated stereotypes. It's hard to do. It's a bit like learning not to slump at your desk or learning not to bite your nails, but you can actually change your behaviour and your attitudes if you just take care to be more aware of them. And, you know, I just want to say this, Aaron, you didn't say it, you're far too modest to say it, but I will say it. If you are a bloke, you just need to read this book and you might find it quite hard work in some ways. I don't mean hard work, it's beautifully written. I mean, you might find at moments you, you think, oh, I don't want to see yet more evidence of the way in which I might be guilty of this. But if you really want to do something about it, spend a few hours reading this book and it will lead you to do the things that Marianne is talking about. So it's a good book. It's an interesting book, but it might also, in a little way, change your life. And who knows, as Marianne said, it might even improve your love life. Marianne Seagott, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Matthew. It's been a delight. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production 
for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen. Thank you for listening. Now, I'm far too modest to discuss my own book on this podcast, but, well, I'm not too modest to tell you about it. So if you're interested in work, the history of work, the nature of work, the future of work, and what we need to do to create a genuinely good work society, then why don't you check out my new book? It's called, Do We Need to Work? Thank you.